Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I'll be your host for this interview. Just a brief background about myself. I'm a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and also maintain a private practice of chiropractic in Eaton, Ohio, at Essence of Wellness Chiropractic Center. My goals for producing these research interviews are to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Dissemination of research findings is an important part of the research process. Publicizing these interviews passes on the benefits of chiropractic research to other researchers, chiropractors in practice, as well as practitioners from other disciplines and the wider community. Another goal is to encourage collaboration of researchers to promote future high-quality chiropractic research. And lastly, to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with ChiroCredit.com to make these podcasts more interactive. Well, let's get started with today's show. Today, I'm extremely excited to interview Dr. Heidi Havik. Dr. Havik is a chiropractor and a neurophysiologist who has worked in the area of human neurophysiology for over 15 years. Heidi has a PhD in human neurophysiology from the University of Auckland. Her work has been instrumental in building the base of scientific evidence demonstrating the efficacy of chiropractic care in improving people's health and well-being. As a researcher, she has investigated the effects of chiropractic adjustments of dysfunctional spinal segments or subluxations on somatosensory processing, sensory motor integration, and motor uh, cortical output. Dr. Havik is the Director of Research at the New Zealand College of Chiropractic, where she has established the Center for Chiropractic Research. Dr. Havik is also an adjunct professor at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology in Oshawa, Canada, and is a member of the World Federation of Chiropractic Research Council. She has received numerous awards, uh, research awards, and published a number of papers in chiropractic and neurophysiology journals. She's presented her uh, work across the world and is also on the editorial board of the JMPT and the Journal of Chiropractic Education. She was named Chiropractor of the Year uh, in 2007 by both New Zealand Chiropractic Association and the New Zealand College of Chiropractic Alumni Association. And she's also the author of a really cool textbook uh, and website, HeidiHavik.com. So uh, the the textbook is great. It's called The Reality Check. Uh, So check that out. Uh, And that describes in an easy-to-understand language what happens in the brain when a chiropractor adjusts dysfunctional segments of your spine. Dr. Havik, thank you so much for being a part of this Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thanks. It's my pleasure. Great. So can you tell me how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor in the first place? Well, that's an easy one, really, because uh, I'm a fourth-generation chiropractor. So my great-grandfather was one of the first thousand chiropractors to ever graduate from Palmer College in the United States. So, uh, I mean, I grew up with my grandmother telling me stories about these, uh, you know, chiropractors and what we did. And she was such a healthy lady, and and she always has put that down to a a lifetime of chiropractic care. That's great. Good stuff. So were there any personal experiences that you had, even though you had been adjusted uh, since probably you were born, I imagine, uh, were there any personal experiences that you thought, oh, I'm I'm really hung up on this stuff, I really want to do it? Funnily enough, no. Okay, okay. It just um, no, no. I mean, I, I grew up in Norway, and my and my um, grandmother was a New Zealander, and so my great grandfather was a New Zealander. My mother's a Kiwi, a New Zealander. So I, but I grew up in Norway. So I grew up in the medical world, medical model. My dad's a doctor, medical doctor, 
um, and my uncles and aunts in Norway were physiotherapists. So I only went to New Zealand as a uh, 20-year-old back in 94, literally just to explore the country. And then I found out about the school, my uncle and aunt in New Zealand, both chiropractors, and that was really the first time I was introduced to it you know, I've always heard the stories, but I never really personally sure. knew much about it. Okay. Yeah. Wow, very cool. So after you went to chiropractic college, you pursued a PhD at the University of Auckland. So why did you want to become a researcher? What, what got you interested in that following chiropractic school? One of my lecturers at chiropractic school was uh, an amazing woman, Dr. Bernadette Murphy, and I believe you've interviewed her as well. Yes, yes, I yes. have. Well, she, she became my PhD supervisor. So she also taught science to us at the chiropractic college in New Zealand. And I just thought she was just so amazing, so smart, so clever, uh, such a wonderful human being. She cared about people. She was a mother, a chiropractor, scientist, teacher. And I literally just wanted to help her. So I continued. She encouraged me to continue doing doing research at Auckland University. Uh, I didn't think I was smart enough. Uh, Bernadette Murphy just kept encouraging me. And it just it just has blossomed into this career that I absolutely love and adore and so passionate about understanding how chiropractic works. Well, thank you for doing what you do, <laughs> because we most appreciate it. Do you still practice at all? I did up until about two years ago. I okay. still practice in, in a sense that I adjust the subjects for our experiments, but it, I've just, it's become so ridiculously busy sure. that, uh, yeah, sure. I keep my license up to date. I make sure I can, and I adjust subjects for studies, but I don't often see private Patience. Got it. Yeah. Well, I want to soon get into the meat of the interview and really start to explore your research. Uh, first, though, you've authored numerous publications in scientific journals such as Experimental Brain Research, Journal of Electromyography and Kinesiology, Journal of Neurophysiology. I've read, I think, most of them that are published. Uh, <laughs> well done. Yes. <laughs> and uh, they, they weren't easy no, to read. No. Uh, there's a lot of jargon that I wasn't uh, quite familiar with, but I've been getting accustomed to. So. Well, remember, I've spent, you know, 10 years uh, yeah. <laughs> studying this stuff full time. So that's right. That's no right. wonder, you know, that's right. a chiropractor that's not also trained as a neuro or brain scientist. Yeah, that's right. No wonder you find it a little bit tricky. <laughs> exactly. So I do, yeah. and, uh, but it's exciting reading. So with your background in neurophysiology and chiropractic, do you feel there are any important um, concepts, hypotheses that can be answered with the neurophysiologic paradigm as it pertains to chiropractic? Well, I do. I, in particular, the question is about the mechanisms. So how does an adjustment work? Which is different from clinical research where you're looking at the efficacy of a, of a treatment for a certain condition, for example. Um, the research that I focused on with my neurophysiology background is trying to understand how our treatments work or how our adjustments work. So when we adjust these dysfunctional segments in the spine that chiropractors call subluxations, you know, what does that do within the central nervous system to cause you know, these improvements in function, reduction in pain, improved quality of life. So that's, that's, that's a key area that neuroscience can help us. That's great. And so one of the things that I get from reading your research, and uh, we're actually right here at the, uh, just after the Ohio State Chiropractic Association meeting that you flew in from New Zealand for. So thank you again for, for coming here to Ohio and educating us. Uh, it's been a blast. Um, and you've just gone through all this for, for us here in Ohio, 
But one of the main things that I got out of your talk today and that I've read uh, from your research is that you're keenly interested in neuroplasticity and how we affect the brain with a chiropractic adjustment. Uh, I'd like to take some time to learn about how chiropractic affects the nervous system and the particular studies that you've done that have explored those mechanisms. So can we start first by perhaps defining what neuroplasticity is? Right. Well, neuroplasticity is any um, change in the structure or function of the central nervous system in response to altered input. So as you get new sensory input coming in, your brain will adapt and change based on that input. And it does it all the time, 24-7. Your brain is constantly changing and adapting because of the new sensory information that's coming in. Got it. So presumably there may be some information that is not going to be adaptive for our system, maybe maladaptive. And then what scientists um, refer to when we talk about maladaptive plastic changes is that there are some changes within the nervous system that we as individuals don't particularly like. So for example, if you're in pain, we know that that is that is an adaptive process within the within the central nervous system, but we don't particularly like pain. So just to sort of differentiate, you know, learning how to play the piano that we consider a good thing versus learning to dysfunction and be in pain, we consider that maladaptive versus adaptive plasticity. Great. So presumably then, if those types of things are maladaptive, then the chiropractic adjustment seems to do something that can lead us away from the maladaptive and make us more adaptive. Yes, there seems to be quite a lot of uh, research findings now where that's exactly what we're finding, that we're, we're actually um, almost reversing maladaptive findings. And it would be quite cool to, to look um, further down the line with clinical research to, to actually see do we actually then therefore prevent problems from developing in the first place. Do we not only, you know fix problems that are developing in a mal- maladaptive way, but can we also prevent them from developing in the first place? Yeah, so can we nip problems in the bud early and then prevent you know, a, a lifetime of chronic pain, for example? Once, you're, once you've an established chronic pain condition, we know it's extremely difficult to, to treat that. Sure. But what I, what I suspect with chiropractic care is that you know, down the track we'll be able to show, I'm hoping, that we can actually prevent these problems from developing in the first place. That's great. By keeping the system in an adaptive neuroplastic um, fashion as opposed to developing these maladaptive processes. Sure. Yeah. So that, that's great. So that means that, you know, we use pain as one example, but people don't have to have pain to benefit from this, do they? No, they don't. And that's really interesting. Because I set out to actually understand the effects of adjusting a dysfunctional segment or a subluxation, I specifically didn't want to include patients that were in pain in our studies because chiropractors are good at at fixing pain. And if I was changing pain, that would also change a lot of these neurophysiological measures that I wanted to record. So I specifically chose people that had spinal problems but weren't experiencing pain, particularly on the day that we were uh, measuring their brain function. And so we have shown, you know, over 15 years now that people that are not experiencing pain um, benefit quite significantly from, from being adjusted. Excellent. Can we get into uh, perhaps a few of the studies in just a little bit more detail uh, as to what you've done and, and what you've shown for this neuroplastic change and how chiropractic affects the brain? And, and uh, I'll just cue you with some, uh, some of the studies because I know you have a bunch. Recently you published a paper in experimental brain research showing that there are changes in what's called the H reflex and V waves uh, following chiropractic adjustments. And the findings were that 
the adjustments appear to alter the net excitability of the low threshold motor units, increasing the cortical drive or brain drive, I guess you could say, and then preventing fatigue. This I see. Uh, I mean, I see all of your studies as an important study, but this is particularly uh, exciting to me. Uh, can you give us some details about it in terms of the methods? What kind of things you did, and maybe we should just first quickly describe what the heck is an H reflex and a V wave? <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> okay. The easiest way to understand the um, the H reflex. Have you ever had the? Uh, I mean, any any chiropractor would understand the tendon tap experiment that we do, where you where you stretch a muscle and it gets a reflexive response and it causes a contraction. Sure, kind of like so, a knee-jerk response, right? Exactly. You go but, to the but physician. But we're doing it yeah, with a, an electrical stimulation of a nerve. Okay. You, you activate the 1A afferents, it, it excites the lower motor neurons, comes back out and contracts the muscle. So we can record that muscle contraction uh, depending on the size of the, of the electrical stimulation. We keep increasing the electrical stimulation, you get a larger and larger response in the muscle called the H-reflex until it plateaus out and then it decreases again and disappears. So we can, we can measure that. It's, it's, a, it's a spinal cord reflex. Um, but what's really fascinating is that the, the brain can actually also modulate the excitability of this spinal cord reflex. Um, the V-wave is, is, a, is a really interesting um, uh, reflex as well, but it, it actually measures the drive from the brain to the muscle. Okay. So it's kind of your brain's ability to drive that muscle. And we can, again, look pre- and post-adjusting subluxations, whether we can alter this. Um, but to do these recordings, you require the subjects or the, the participants to keep doing their maximum voluntary contractions. And so what was quite interesting with this study is we do two sessions, one session where we adjust them and one session where we just set them up so we control for movement and, and touch and chatting to the chiropractor in time. And so when we were just you know doing that, just setting them up, chatting to them, and measuring these things pre- and post doing nothing to them really, they were getting fatigued. They were, they, they were weaker, maximum contractions, identical reflexes, identical V-waves. Actually, no, the V-waves were reducing, um, which match up with the, that they were getting fatigued, fatigued sure. and that they had reduced strength. Got it. Which but is when, what you'd expect, right? Which is In what you'd a expect. typical situation. Yeah. Yeah. If you're sitting there doing maximum contractions over and yeah. over again, you, sure. you fatigue. You're going to yeah. get fatigued, yeah. But what was really fascinating is when we, when we did the adjustment session, not only was there no evidence of fatigue, they had increased their strength. Wow. Um, by 16%. There was a very small change to the H-reflex, but a 16% increase in strength and a 50% change in their V-wave, their drive from their brain to that muscle. And so this was really fascinating, particularly when I was um, looking at the literature when I was writing the paper up to, to publish it. Sure. Um, I came across a study that had been done looking at... Um, comparing three weeks of strength training to three weeks of endurance training. And I couldn't believe it because our findings with a single session of chiropractic adjustments of subluxations had almost identical findings, neurophysiologically speaking, to three weeks of strength training. Wow, that's great. <laughs> I and, mean, that's amazing. And so, so myself, I teach in a kinesiology department. And so one of the things we tell our students is, look, during the first four to five weeks of strength training, what you're going to find is not a hypertrophy or a growth in the size exactly. of the muscle, but rather it's neural developing changes. because of neural changes. So that just that perfectly yeah. explains the story here. Well, I think. what's really fascinating is spinal function is changing the way the brain is driving a leg muscle. I mean, that's, that's quite profound. Yeah, that's you know, very profound. It shows, it shows us that our, our, the way our spines function is actually important for how the brain will can control our muscles. Yes, and it 
blends in very well with the literature that already has been done looking at strength changes following adjustments, but now it gives it a framework for, for how, how it why. happens. Yeah. 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 That Amazing. it's not a reflexive thing, that this is a, a change yeah. in the brain's ability to drive that muscle. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, so um, you've done uh, many other studies, so I want to just talk about a few of them. Uh, another one, you looked at alterations in cortical and cerebellar motor processing and subclinical neck pain patients following adjustments. Can you give us a recap on, on what that study is and what it means? Well, this is really interesting, too. Another thing that um, you know, many chiropractic um, patients will come in and, and, and sort of explain clumsiness, sort of general clumsiness. They stub their toe, they knock their head, they put their glass down, they think they're putting it on the table, but they actually sure. it falls off the table and sure. smashes the floor. So there's, sure. there's really only a couple of parts of the brain that would be heavily involved with that kind of fine-tuning of motor control. Yeah. Not, we're not talking about direct strength now, we're talking about fine-tuning motor control. And the cerebellum is, is really heavily involved in that fine-tuning of motor control. Anybody would know... You know, if you knock your cerebellum up by drinking a little bit too much alcohol, <laughs> that you'll fine tune motor control. Kind I've of never goes, done that. Kind of goes just up, to no, let no, you know. me neither. Obviously, never, ever, ever. So. <laughs> but but there might be people out there that, that of know what I'm talking about. Anyway, yeah. so we, we wanted to look at you know because we've seen this clumsiness disappear when when we adjust people's spines again. So we want to look at well, do we alter this? So one cool method that you that you can use to actually simulate the the brain is uh, called transcranial magnetic stimulation. So what we can do is we can send a, um, a high current through a coil and it sets up a perpendicular um, magnetic field and we can actually non-invasively activate the, the actual neural tissues of our brain. So I don't have to open up your skull and, and stick electrodes in, which is kind of cool. Most yeah, people appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so anyway, we, we stimulate over the cerebellum and about five milliseconds later we stimulate over the motor cortex and then we record the signal at that motor cortex activation down to a, a muscle like a hand muscle. And what we do when we stimulate the, motor cor- the, the cerebellum first is we inhibit the signal that gets sent for the motor cortex because we know that the cerebellar activation of the motor cortex is an inhibitory one. Right. So this is normal physiology. So what we wanted to look at then, well, well, how about if we stimulate the cerebellum at increasing intensities, do we get more and more inhibition going down to the muscle. And in healthy people, that's what you find. But what was really interesting is we were comparing people that had ongoing you know, mild chronic neck problems. Right. But they weren't in pain on the day again. Specifically, as I said before, we didn't, we didn't want to have the pain as a confounding variable. So, so when you compare healthy people to neck pain people, they don't have this modulation of the cerebellum to their motor cortex. Okay. But when we adjusted these guys that had the spinal dysfunction, and we actually end up bringing back this this increasing um, modulation from the cerebellum back to the motor control. So it it becomes more normalized, looking more like the normal controls. Yes. That's awesome. So we thought that was extremely exciting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, getting again at the mechanisms of how chiropractic care makes people function better. Sure, sure. So it might be improving this communication between the cerebellum and motor cortex. Which then, getting back to the behavioral aspects, people notice less clumsiness, less clumsiness. more accuracy yes. in their movements, yes. better performance, better yes. strength, yes. better thinking. Absolutely. <laughs> well, there actually is. I mean, we have done perceptive studies showing improved ability sure. to, to perceive where your arms and legs are in space. We've shown changes in mental rotation tasks. So people literally are able to to process objects in space better once they've right. been adjusted. So, right. you know, it sounds like you're joking, but we're not. Yeah. No, we're definitely <laughs> not amazing. joking here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's unbelievable stuff. When you look at the, the body of evidence that you've accumulated over the years, uh, are there any other things that 
I'm sure there are lots of things that we could talk about, but how about some really important findings that uh, you would emphasize to chiropractors and to their patients? How would you describe your own research um, over the years? What are some summary points, I guess, in other words? Well, if I may, one, one yeah. thing that I think that our work has, has changing is our understanding of how adjusting a subluxation actually works. I know a lot of the old um, theories of how chiropractic worked was that, you know, spinal bones were out of place and that we, you know, adjust them back into place and take pressure off the nerve root. Right. Now, our research is kind of indicating that that's not the case. What our, what our work is showing is that it's actually got a more profound effect than just relieving pressure on a single nerve root. And I think this is really, really important, not just to the, to the chiropractors, but to the population in general, that the effect chiropractors seem to have when they adjust dysfunctional segments in the spine is we improve the, your brain's ability to perceive what's going on in your body, your environment around you, and therefore respond more appropriately to all the information that the brain receives and therefore can control your body better. And that's quite a profound shift from from our old theories of how, how oh, sure. we used to think sure. it worked. Sure, sure. Yeah. Or even how patients or other people view what chiropractors do uh, as just yeah. back pain specialists or yeah. just treating neck pain. Uh, it really makes a, quite a different statement. Well, it does. It seems to indicate that we change far more than just relieving some uh, pinched nerves, <laughs> Yeah, that we yeah. profoundly change the way the brain functions. Yeah. And I, I think some special populations certainly have figured this out. Athletes, for example, yep. they know. Yep. They know what we do improves their performance, yep. uh, and they want a piece of it. Yep. <laughs> they just want to maximally perform. And well, it's if, causing a whole lot of new um, avenues for us to research as well. Right. I mean, if we now know that we change prefrontal cortex, we've also shown that we change the brain's ability to filter um, afferent information that it receives. Right. This opens up avenues to look at, like children with autism, children with ADHD. They have children with ADHD often have prefrontal cortex problems. We, we've mm-hmm. shown fifty percent changes in prefrontal cortex uh, changes in in adults with again adjusting the spine. Yeah, you know, so there's yeah. it's opening up avenues that we yeah. might not have thought about. Yeah, that that chiropractic could could have a significant That's impact totally amazing. on and, and and help people. Totally amazing, and you know, getting back to. Uh, to my work in exercise, one of the things we're finding out, for example, is exercise has, and you mentioned this before, has a similar effect on the prefrontal cortex, yeah. for instance. And even after a half an hour session of 60% of someone's VO2 max, uh, we can show that there's a profound effect in terms of their movement time, reaction times, yep. cognitive manipulation of objects, yep. etc. And so what's exciting to me is that we're finding this in chiropractic, and then if we, what if we merge some of these things together? I know. I know. Isn't that that gets that's me wild, really right? exciting, yeah. uh, excited as well? And I think that's where the future lies. To really get people well and to stay well is to combine a lot of these things. That chiropractic shouldn't be something that people have on their own. Medicine shouldn't be something that people, you know, seek on its own. That that there is a lot, you know, you can exercise, you can have good nutrition, you can get chiropractic re- uh, care regularly. That these things combined probably have a, a far more uh, profound effect. Yeah. And we're even um, starting to look at some of these studies where we're combining exercises with chiropractic. Um, That's great. Yeah, pre- preliminary findings so far, so I, yeah. I, I can't go and... Got it. I can't tell you about it yet. Well, that's okay. We'll, we'll, next time. We'll, we'll absolutely have another time if you're agreeable to that. I'd love to have you back on. Now, you've done work with uh, somatosensory evoked potentials as well. We haven't really talked a whole lot about that. Can you can you tell us what the 
maybe pick one or two studies uh, and tell us what those kinds of studies are showing us, specifically in terms of the mechanisms. We talked about transcranial magnetic stim, for example, and the descending input. But what about the information that's coming from the body and going up to the brain? Yeah, well, this is this is uh, you know really exciting stuff. We um, I started out in, in early in my PhD looking at some of the sensory potentials. What what we're really doing there is we're, we're stimulating a, a mixed nerve at the wrist, and we are recording how the brain processes that information at various sort of relay stations on the way up to the cortex, and how it's how it's then thinking about that information and sort of responding to it, or what scientists call sensory motor integration. So sort of taking that sensory information and determining what am I going to do with it. And so what, what we've been able to show uh, repeatedly is that we change this um, cortical peak called the N30 uh, somatosensory evoked potential peak. And this peak is known to be um, highly involved in early somatosensory evoked and in early sensory motor integration. And so and this is what I was getting at with the prefrontal cortex because we followed it up, um, you know, after I've repeated it three times. We've, we've just recently we reproduced the same study again using whole head EEG and, and they've been able to um, calculate from that exactly where in the brain the changes are taking place. Wow. And this is where it's really, really exciting because they've shown that there's a, or we have shown that there's a 50% reduction in uh, activity in the prefrontal cortex. And that prefrontal cortex, so, so again, we're showing that adjusting the spine, adjusting dysfunctional segments of the spine has this major impact on prefrontal cortex function. And this gets really interesting because the prefrontal cortex is like the cerebellum. It's heavily involved in all aspects of – it's like one of your um, you know, key controllers in your brain. It's where you uh, ignore all the uh, irrelevant sensory information that you don't need for the task at hand. It's where you focus your attention. It's where you're, you, you, do, you, you, come up, you concoct your little sub, subgroups of things you need to do and switch between the different tasks. Mm-hmm. So it's a – it's called your executive functions. So this is this is an area that I'm extremely excited about following up to to, to look at you know more at what this means for us. But it's it's yeah. Uh, yeah very exciting. We've also in this same line of research shown that the brain becomes more accurately aware of where your arms and legs are in space. So this again has uh, big implications for for people with the clumsiness. Uh, for the elderly population, we've even shown that we improve their ankle joint position sense. Sure. That becomes very important for falls sure. risk. Concussions, yeah. I imagine. Well, concussions, yeah. Well, being able to think and focus again. That's, a, that's a gotta be a cortex. negative plastic response. Yeah, it has to be a maladaptive. <laughs> so there's quite a few sports in America that yeah, uh, end up that's with right. quite a few concussions, aren't there? Yeah. <laughs> I suspect so. I see many, many subjects there I can, <laughs> can explore right. <laughs> future studies. Well, maybe we can tap into that population <laughs> good to me. as well. Um, so if you were to, in a, to explain how an adjustment, a chiropractic adjustment works... How would you explain that to? Uh, I don't know if we should describe to, a, you know, to another professional uh, like a neurophysiologist. Uh, maybe maybe we okay. can do that to yeah. Yeah. If, to if a neurophysiologist right. and then to a patient. In that case, I would, I would um, first describe what a subluxation is. Yeah, perfect. Chiropractors for over 120 years, we don't randomly manipulate the spine. We we check the spine for areas that aren't um, functioning properly. They're often tender to the touch. There's we can reasonably, reliably identify these dysfunctional segments um, based on that tenderness to touch and their uh, changes in range of motion. They often have joint feel uh, changes, again, that, that we can palpate. So um, from a neurophysiological perspective, um, based on all the work I've been doing for the last 15 years in, in neuroscience research, I would describe these segments as central segmental motor control problems. 
So the central nervous system isn't actually controlling the movement pattern of that spinal segment appropriately. And then, then I would explain that when we adjust these um, segments, when we you know, apply our spinal manipulation to a dysfunctional area, that's what we call, chiropractors call an adjustment, um, the theory then goes is that we are almost um, resetting that segment. It's almost like a stretch reflex of all the little paraspinal tissues, uh-huh. and, and we restore appropriate movement. And what we think this is, because um, neuroscientists also know that the um, the small, you know, these small muscles, these small paraspinal muscles, they are they have much higher density of the muscle uh, stretch receptors. So, so restoring proper movement will restore a feedback of information back to the brain. So, a lot of scientists, not even just chiropractors, but a lot of other neuroscientists, actually think that these little paraspinal muscles—they're like the eyes in the spine. They're your brain's way of knowing what's going on in the spine. And this information seems to be very important for how the brain then perceives what's going on in the, in the rest of the body, how it integrates other sensory information, and how it controls the body. And we believe it's because of the reestablishing this communication between the spine and the brain. And it, and it might be because it represents the core of the body, the, you know, that the brain always needs to be making decisions what it's doing based on where it is. So it's right. using that core paraspinal information. Right. And if you've got stuck segments that aren't moving, well, obviously, they're not stretching the paraspinal muscle. They're not going to be feeding the brain with information. So then the brain kind of has to go on autopilot and kind of guess what's going on. Right. And I think we literally restore communication between the brain and the spine and that this seems to have a profound effect on how the brain perceives what's going on in the rest of the body, integrates sensory information, and therefore can control the body more appropriately and accurately. Good stuff. Good stuff. Now, how can we tell this simply to to a patient then? Well, to to, to the public, I, ge- I generally talk about a subluxation is a bit like a uh, a fuse blowing in the spine, so that there's a part of the body then that the brain can't see, so it makes it up, uh-huh. and most of the time it will function okay. You might just notice little blips in in your in your system that you're a little bit clumsy or your golf swings out or right. you know, but these things over time can accumulate. So if you've got faulty motor control because of, you know, spinal dysfunction, that therefore the brain's not communicating accurately to the knee anymore and it's sending different muscles to your – different messages to your thigh muscles so that it's now operating in a way that's less than ideal, well, over time you can start to develop problems. And this is why we think that the spinal function can impact other um, conditions and the development of pain and problems. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So when we adjust this – we restore appropriate communication. It's like we switch the lights back on so the brain can accurately see what's going on in the body and the world around you and therefore respond more appropriately. And sure. all of a sudden, all these little you know, problems seem to disappear. Yeah, so that perfectly explains how somebody could come in for, let's say, low back pain and they get adjusted and the headaches that they've had for years or... That they may not the, even have told you about. That the, yeah, well, <laughs> They of start course. disappearing, yeah. Of course, yeah. yeah. So... Patients do that all the time. You know, they don't write down a lot of the symptoms sometimes uh, that they may have because they figure it has nothing to do. That's right. They're there for the back pain. They don't realize that we could help with headaches or clearer thinking. Or I I can't tell you how many times I've heard that, and I know you have too. And every chiropractor has sleeping better. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've had we've had subjects that have come in for our studies. So all we're recording is a set set of things, and they start writing letters to us thanking us for even doing this research project so that they, you know, happen to then get chiropractic care that they wouldn't have normally sought. And all these other things have changed for them. Yeah. You know, they, they, they suddenly can swallow their food better. These, right. you know, chronic headache pains yeah, have gone away yeah, that they've yeah. had for 50 years. Yeah. It was unbelievable. Yeah, but yeah. your model, like, 
exactly can account for all of those. Well, it explains all these things. It explains yeah. everything. Because yeah. if we change brain function, you, you yeah. could impact pretty much everything. Yeah. 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 It's kind of like the brain controls everything, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> what gives you that idea? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> 100 years of neuroscience. That's right. So, <laughs> Dr. Havik, where do you see your research going in the next five to 10 years? And I know you have, from what you explained, probably hundreds of studies in your mind oh, as to do. what you want to do. do. And, yeah. and uh, if we can get some research funding going your way, uh, we'll do that. Um, we'll give people maybe a chance to figure out where where you're at at the end of the call and uh, yeah. how they might be able to contribute to that. But what ideally, what do you want well, to see? There's many, many a- avenues. I want to continue to understand better and more how how an adjustment actually works, how it helps improve uh, function, how, why it you know raises quality of life. We've shown that in studies over and over, and I want to understand how and why. I'm really driven by understanding that. But there's other lines of research that we're really interested in as well. Um, we're looking now also at more clinical outcomes that we correlate with the functional outcomes. So looking at kids with ADHD looking at their brain changes as well as their clinical outcomes. So, you know, with and uh, without chiropractic care, looking at kids with autism, looking at the elderly, uh, looking at prevention of, of falls risk. There's so many sensory motor integrative functions that we obviously now know we impact yes. that are very, very important for the elderly population in relation to falls, yep. in relation to their ability to carry out um, normal daily activities of living, to be able to live independently and stay out of hospitals and and becoming institutionalized. Um, we're really, really interested in looking at can we identify brain markers, objective brain markers, where we can see people that are developing problems. Can we nip that in the bud and can we prevent problems from developing into chronic pain that becomes extremely difficult to then treat and, and, a, and a lifelong problem? We know kids develop um, pain at an early age, and if they do develop pain at an early age, they are likely to become adults with pain, with lifelong pain, sure. pain problems. Sure. So this is an area that I'm extremely interested in. Can we nip that in the bud? Can we prevent these people from, you know, having a fall in an accident and, you know, shit yeah. happens? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Can for sure. we then prevent them from going on to having a, a lifetime of, uh, you know, chronic pain problems? Yeah, I mean Because that... these things come and go to begin with, you know. Can we nip that in the bud? That's, yeah. that's something that really excites me. So I'm working yeah. with a team of, uh, you know, medical doctors, neurophysiologists around the world. We, we, we collaborate with people... Um, in Turkey, in, in Denmark, uh, in Australia, in Canada, like, like you right, mentioned, Bernd right. Murphy, uh, where we're looking at you know, many of these aspects, looking at where spinal dysfunction is starting to develop. We're identifying that they control their arms differently. They perceive where their arm is to be different than it is. Right. You know, and we see that we can reverse that with chiropractic care. Yeah. So we can take that the step further and start doing prospective studies looking at yeah. well, can we actually prevent them from going on to developing bigger problems. Right. One of the things uh, also I see is that for the chiropractor, I'm sure it's not too far away, maybe 5, 10, 15 years, uh, the assessment's going to change based upon what you're doing. Exactly. I mean, we're going to have maybe tools that the chiropractor can use in office to assess these neuroplastic changes to see the, the permanency essentially of the effect well I, i'm also really interested in knowing is our, our skill does does that matter you know could you do a weekend course in manipulation and expect the same kind of brain changes that a chiropractor who spent you know five six seven eight nine years studying to become a chiropractor right you know before they're let loose on the public so to speak yeah, yeah. you know there's other professions that might do a weekend course in manipulation you know can we expect the same kind of changes that yeah. You know, that skill, you know, and then even chiropractors, there are many different techniques that chiropractors have, you know, do do different techniques, uh, 
you know, give different neurophysiological responses, you know, or, or, or does it not matter too much the kind of technique we use or, or yep. does it? You know, the, yep. there's so many things even in that area that I'd, I'd really love to explore. You know, you know, how can we do a better service for the public? You know, can we, you know, in certain situations use certain techniques because research shows us that, 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 that our patients will be better off if we, if we use this technique versus that technique, yep. depending on what they present with. So there's there's a there's so much to do. We yeah, optimizing we need optimizing our control. We need funding. Yep. We'll emphasize that again. Yes, we need funding. <laughs> we'll tell please, people how to do that in just a little bit. Uh, so, how about the some of the pressing issues that you see within the profession? When you look at the profession, you look at your research and what's going on, perhaps with other research that's going uh, within chiropractic. What what do you see as some of the some of the things that chiropractors need to work on? Well, um, I think chiropractors need to join the 21st century and, and sort of um, become up to date with this latest science because it is changing how we understand now chiropractic care to work, it? right? So yeah. it'd, be, it'd be kind of cool if we stop talking about a theory of a burnout place squashing a nerve where we kind of know that that's in most cases is not the case. I mean, yes, we can have nerve root lesions and yes, chiropractic care can probably relieve the pressure on those nerves. I have, I have no doubt about that. But yeah. the majority of spinal dysfunction that we adjust doesn't have a nerve root lesion component to it. It's much bigger than that. Yep. So it'd be kind of cool if, if the chiropractic profession um, would educate themselves as yep. to, to what the science is saying. Um, I also see this research that we're doing that I believe it will help build bridges within the profession because I, I believe it will explain why some of the uh, clinical research that has been done isn't showing us what chiropractors see in practice. Mm-hmm. Because I think the thing that chiropractors will see people that that have spinal dysfunction, whereas if you do a clinical trial on a, on a certain condition, you would include people that have spinal dysfunction and potentially don't have spinal dysfunction. Right. And all of a sudden, in our clinical trials, we're not finding that chiropractic care helps, yep. potentially because we're not looking at the subgrouping of that population. We're not sure. finding the people that have that condition that have spinal dysfunction where there's a dysfunction within the central nervous system causing their symptoms. Does, right. that, does that make sense? Well, totally. So I, I think mean, we're going to build, build some bridges within the profession. And my other advice to the profession is that we just ignore the loud idiots on either end of the extremes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I believe the bulk of us, the, the majority, 90%, uh, we are very sane, rational beings. Uh, we don't randomly manipulate the spine. Right. Uh, there's a lot of science now that can explain how our care works. We can be Right. We can be up to date and wide awake, and totally, and, and we can share this science. We can we can still honour our technique, um, but it's no longer just a theory or a philosophy. Chiropractic, yeah. it is now, it's got quite a good uh, scientific base behind it as well. Right, and we're doing way more research worldwide, not just us. Yeah, oh, yeah. totally. It's it's expanding big time. Yeah, uh, it really is exciting stuff. So a goal of this podcast series is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors who may be interested in pursuing research careers? Yes. Those of you out there that have this inquiring mind, I know you exist. (laughs) I was one of you. I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I was smart enough. But if you have that burning desire to understand, to want to explain, to be able to to understand how something works or why it works or if it works in certain uh, situations, please, uh, you know, drop me a line, send me an email. Um, I know many of the many of the scientific scientific community within chiropractic. I know them all around the world. Uh, I go to all the scientific uh, conferences if I can. I might be able to hook you up with someone 
within the area that you're interested in. Uh, it's really, really important for our future that we that we continue to train new scientists. There is so much research that needs to be done that the, you know, we don't have a fraction of the chiropractic scientists that we need to be able to fully understand how chiropractic works, to be able to serve the public better. Agreed. Uh, on the other hand, we have a lot of good science, the kind of science that you're producing, the kind of science that other people are producing, and chiropractors, unfortunately, just are not aware of the stuff that's already out there. I know. It's a bit sad. It is. We need to work on that. Too. And certainly the population is not, because if the chiropractors aren't aware, the population as a whole is not going to know. No. Our, <laughs> our, you know, our administrators and government and whatnot, they're not familiar with this either. We're actually trying to make it easier for chiropractors and, and the public to, to understand the research, to understand the facts. Uh, we've even designed, we've put a... We've, uh, I've established a company now that literally designs um, little public animations that, that just talks about what the research tells us about chiropractic. It's a membership that uh, chiropractors can sign up to. Money goes back to us uh, to us to do more research, which is which is phenomenal. Um, but it also educates the chiropractor in a very very easy uh, online way. What is the science saying? Um, and gives you access to a lot of this information. We don't just cover our own research. We we talk about studies in general. I know a lot of chiropractors don't want to spend the time searching the literature, critiquing right. the literature, right. translating it into a language that makes sense to the public. That's I understand right. that that's a it's a tedious job. Someone like me really enjoys it. Yeah, yeah. So my, my idea was, well, let's let's exchange. Let's I can help you. You can help me. I can do more work, and I can help you back again. That's right. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, that's exactly what we need. Because as a chiropractor researcher myself, it is difficult getting dollars, uh, oh. and there's no doubt. So how, how do people contribute to your research funds? Well, there's, there's different ways they can contribute. If they, if they are chiropractors and they'd like to um, join this membership, then they get educated. They can use all our public animations. They know it's backed by science. Um, as science changes, I will update what is sent out. It's... Uh, We've done a lot of research on how to how to get the information across in an easy to understand language. I think we've achieved that really, really well. Um, they can sign up to that membership. It's at HorvikResearch.com. So that's H A A V I K Research R E A S E A R. I can't spell research.com. <laughs> it's been a long day. It's been a long day. I'm jet lagged. Um, so they can sign up to it on on that uh, research uh, on our website. Um, you can also directly uh, donate money. We get um, people all around the world, chiropractors all around the world, even even members of the public donate directly to our research centre in New Zealand. It is a non-for-profit trust, so uh, it's tax, deduct tax deductible from the US over a certain amount. So again, you could just send me an email. You can contact me at any of my websites. There's a contact site. You, there's a HeidiHorvick.com um, website as well. Even if you searched for Heidi Chiropractic Research, Normally I, I pop up in Google. <laughs> so it shouldn't be hard to get, get in touch with me, and we can leave our, leave our contact details with you too. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll put that on the website. So, yeah, direct donations. There's, there's other avenues. There's, uh, there's organizations around the world that uh, literally raise funds for research, not just for our research, but for you know, spinal research. There's an Australian Spinal Research Foundation in Australia. There's another, that's another avenue. They, they've been very supportive of our work and other 
really cool uh, research, very relevant to, to chiropractic practice. Fantastic. Well, I'd like to wrap up then by just thanking you very much for being on the podcast. It's oh, certainly been a me. pleasure, and I've learned a lot, and I'm all pumped up now uh, about your research, so this is fantastic. Uh, we do have some upcoming uh, podcasts. Uh, next month we'll have Dr. Christine Gertz. So we She's look forward wonderful. To, yes, so we look forward to, uh, Love Christine. to her talk as well. And uh, I guess that's it. So thanks again thanks. so much. Thanks, Steve. Been All a right. pleasure. Bye now.